0: Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Loeb. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Loeb is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource, that it may be a blessing. All right, we'll take a Bible and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 988. 988. And we have come to the end of our study through First Thessalonians this morning. And I hope that it's been a, a helpful series for you over the last couple of months, as we've seen that the gospel, the good news about what Jesus has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection... It calls us to be characterized by faith, love, and hope. It calls us to faithfulness and evangelism and discipleship. We've seen that it prepares us to face opposition and persecution for our faith. It calls us to love one another and and love all people, for that matter. It leads us to reflect God's good design in our sexuality. It promises that the Lord will eventually come back to raise us and all who have died in Christ, to eternal life with him. And it calls us to live our lives properly in anticipation of that day. And Now as we finish the letter this morning, we're going to cover the second half of Paul's final instructions. And so we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're going to pick up in verse 16. Paul writes, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And so, as we get started, Paul calls the Thessalonians to do three things to rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks. And then he, he links each of these activities uh, with, with a description of frequency. He says, Always, without ceasing and in all circumstances. And and the main idea here in this first section is that believers should engage in each of these activities consistently. And we'll take a moment to look at each one individually. So first of all, Paul says to rejoice always. And to rejoice means to be in a a state of gladness or of joy. And, And the modifier always suggests that we should be in a state of gladness or joy consistently, constantly. But in light of how hard life can be sometimes, it raises the question of of whether or not rejoicing always maybe is an unrealistic expectation. Can that really happen? So we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But secondly, Paul says to pray without ceasing. Now, uh, oftentimes the, the without ceasing part confuses people. Uh, Because, once again, it raises the question of whether or not this is actually possible. Because it seems impossible to literally never stop praying. I mean, at the very least, how can you pray while you're asleep, for, for instance? And so, is this actually possible? We need to understand that Paul is using hyperbole. He is making an intentional overstatement, an exaggeration, in order to make a point. And that point is that we should be praying consistently... Uh, over uh, all the day, we should have an attitude of prayer that seeks to keep in touch with the Lord throughout the day. And so, as we come into different situations, as we encounter different people, as we come to find different needs, we should regularly take all of those things to the Lord in prayer. We should ask for His provision for those things, ask for His intervention as necessary. As we see evidence of God's work in the world around us or in our, in our own lives, we should stop and give him praise for, for his goodness and for his work uh, in our lives. When we become aware of sin in our lives, we should confess it and ask the Lord for forgiveness and for the, the power and ability to repent of it. And so it's certainly important for us to have intentional, focused times of prayer But in a variety of ways, we should also be consistently touching base with our Heavenly Father off and on throughout the day. Or as Paul would say, without ceasing. And then finally, Paul says to give thanks in all circumstances. Now, you may remember that we talked about this verse a few months ago, right before Thanksgiving. And so I'm not going to take a lot of time to rehash that. But there's a good bit of overlap here with the command to rejoice always, particularly the the question of whether it's actually possible to do this. And so it's worth remembering uh, what we saw, that we can be thankful and rejoice even in difficult circumstances. Number one, because we know that God uses our suffering and our trials to grow and to develop us spiritually spiritually. Two, because we know that God is at work in all circumstances for our ultimate good, as Romans 8.28 promises us. And also number three, because when times are hard, we can know that things won't always be like this. All right, we have the promise that one day Jesus comes back, he makes all things right again. And so our suffering and our difficulties in this life are only temporary. All right, and then in the second half of verse 18, Paul explains why. We should rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. And it's because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So simply put, God desires us to do these things. It honors and glorifies Him when we live our lives in this way. And what this means is that God does not want us to be controlled by our circumstances. In other words, what determines what we do in our lives and how we do it shouldn't be what's going on around us or what's happening in our lives. But what determines those things should be who God is and what he's done for us through Jesus. And so it's not that life doesn't have its ups and downs and its twists and turns and it's it's not that we never get angry or that we never feel sad or or afraid or, or whatever the case may be. But but it's the fact that we never experience those realities outside of the bigger reality of what God has done for us through Jesus. Right? for, For those who have placed our faith in Jesus, the truth is that God, the God of the universe, has set his love on us. Our sins have been forgiven. Our salvation has been secured. Right? Our, our, our future, our eternal future is inescapably, unspeakably bright. Right? The gospel should be the controlling reality of our lives. And because all of these things are true, no matter where we are or, or what we are going through in life, we can and should rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. And we glorify the Lord in our lives when we do these things. And beginning in verse 19, Paul turns to address the Thessalonians' interaction with the Holy Spirit. And so we'll pick up again, uh, beginning in verse 19. Paul writes, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So moving into this middle section, Paul gives the Thessalonians instructions in regards to their interactions with the Holy Spirit. So starting in verse 19, he writes, Do not quench the Spirit. Now the word quench can mean to extinguish, much like you would look to put out a fire, uh, but it can also mean stifle or to resist. As the the third person of the Godhead, the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is actively involved in the lives of believers. The Holy Spirit is, is who regenerates our hearts at the time of conversion. He indwells and he gifts us in specific ways for the work of ministry. He intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray. He ministers to us and reminds us of the truth of God's word. But here, Paul indicates that the Holy Spirit's work in our lives and in our church can also be hindered in certain ways. And So first, we see that the Spirit could be quenched, By how the Thessalonians approached the issue of prophecy. Paul says in verse 20, Do not despise prophecies. Now, now prophecy is a tricky topic when it comes to New Testament studies. Uh, There is not a standard definition of of what it is, there's a lot of disagreement about how it functioned in the early church, uh, and also whether or not it continues to occur today in churches in the same way that it did among the early church. But at risk of oversimplification, I, I think we can safely say that prophecy is the communication of divinely revealed information. Now, that prophecy is, is the communication of divinely revealed information. Probably everyone can agree on that even if they would like to say more about it from, from whatever perspective they're coming from. And so typically when Americans think about prophecy, we think about predicting the future what's going to happen down the road. But that is not what biblical prophecy is, even though sometimes it includes talking about future events and and bringing the, the significance of those events into the present moment. We also know that from 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that the purpose of prophecy is to strengthen, encourage, comfort, and build up the church. And so, with that in mind, we could say that prophecy is the communication of divinely revealed information for the benefit of the church. Now, having said that, there are a number of potential reasons why the Thessalonians might have been tempted to reject prophecy. For one, there's always the danger of false prophets uh, who would lead believers away from the truth and into falsehood. And so, instead of taking that risk, some people would rather just do away with prophecy altogether. There was also a significant element of prophecy and and interacting with the spiritual realm in many of the pagan religions in the ancient world. And so it's possible that as some of the Thessalonians came to faith in Christ out of those backgrounds, that the, the idea of prophecy was associated with things that they felt were inappropriate for a Christian to engage in. And also, just from what we know historically, in in the larger Greco-Roman world at this time, there was a general distrust. There was a a suspicion of prophecy, particularly among the philosophers, and and a a question of whether or not this actually happens. Would a god or goddess actually communicate to people in that way? And so that may have influenced uh, some of the Thessalonians away from embracing prophecy. But whatever the reason or or the reasons may have been, Paul instructs the Thessalonians to be open to prophecy. The key, as we see in verse 21, is to test everything, to hold fast what is good. And so if someone offered a prophecy, the church was to test it, meaning that they were to compare what was said to what God's word said and to, to examine whether it lined up with the scriptures and so if it didn't pass the test, if it didn't line up with what God has already said, then it was to be rejected. But if it, uh, if it did line up, if it was in line with the scriptures, then it could be received as valid or, or held fast, as Paul says. Now, Again, there's a good bit of debate over some of the specifics of prophecy and also whether or not it occurs in the same way in churches today as it did in the early church. Uh, and there are good arguments to be made on both sides, uh, and there are are really solid, faithful theologians who disagree on the topic. And to be honest, I'm not completely sure of what I think about it, although I I lean towards uh, the idea that it does not function in the same way today. But here's what I think we can all agree on for certain, and that is that anytime anybody tries to tell us something on behalf of God, whether it's a, a pastor who is preaching, or whether it's a friend or a family member who's giving us counsel about a particular situation in our life, or or whether it's a a random stranger at Walmart who walks up to you and says, God told me to tell you, fill in the blank. I don't know if I'm the only person that's ever happened to you before. But but anytime anybody tries to tell us something on behalf of God, uh, it needs to conform to what the scriptures say. If it doesn't, then we need to reject it. Uh, and if it does, well, well, then we can talk. But uh, I don't know that we should expect to hear from God through prophecy. Uh, but based on what Paul sees here, says here, uh, I think we should at least be open to the idea as long as it conforms to God's word. Then in verse 22, Paul instructs the Thessalonians to abstain from every form of evil. And so this is referring to a second way that, that the power and influence of the Holy Spirit could be hindered. Now, obviously, Paul doesn't mean for us to avoid evil in every sense, because evil is all around us in the world. There's there's no way to actually get away from it. But what he means is for us to refuse to participate in any form of evil ourselves. Paul warns the Ephesians not to grieve the Holy Spirit by willfully engaging in something that we know to be sin that when we do that, the power and influence of the Spirit decreases in our lives and in our church. And he gives us that same warning here as he calls us to abstain from every form of evil. And so Paul finally draws the letter to a close, as we'll pick up one last time, beginning in verse 23. He writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And so as Paul closes the letter, he offers a final prayer for the the well-being of the Thessalonians. He writes, "...now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ." So he prays for their sanctification. And we've seen already that sanctification refers to the process of being set aside by God for his purposes... And we, we have been sanctified in a sense positionally in, the, in terms of the fact that God has set us aside for his purposes at his, as his people, but we're also being sanctified practically as we grow more and more like Jesus in our character and in our actions so that we can serve God's purposes in our lives. And here Paul prays that that process of sanctification will be fulfilled completely and that we will be blameless before the Lord on Judgment Day. Now, Paul's reference to God himself at the beginning of verse 23 emphasizes that our sanctification is ultimately something that God does. All right, while we are certainly called to seek to grow in our faith by engaging in the spiritual disciplines and the other means of grace that the Lord provides for us, our sanctification is ultimately something that God accomplishes in us. And so Paul writes to the Philippians that he is confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And this is further confirmed here in verse 24, where Paul writes, he who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. And so we have confidence that the God who called us to salvation in the first place is going to be faithful to us, and he is going to see us all the way through to the end. And it's just like we, we often sing, When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. And church, this is good news, because I really believe that if it was up to us, we'd figure out a way to mess it up somehow. Right, if, if John MacArthur has said, if it was possible for you to lose your salvation, you would. All right, but, but we will not because God is faithful. Our sanctification will be complete and we will stand before the Lord on the day of judgment, not primarily because we are so wise or because we are so obedient or wonderful, but because God is so faithful to his people. And then in verse 25, Paul says, brothers, pray for us. You know, as, as much as Paul prayed for the churches that he worked with, he was always very much aware of his own needs as well. And so he consistently asks the churches to pray for his ongoing ministry in other places. And as we saw back at the beginning of this uh, series, that at this point we know from Acts chapter 18 that Paul and Silas and Timothy were in the city of Corinth. Where they were experiencing a, a significant amount of opposition to their ministry, but also a significant response to the gospel despite that opposition, and so Paul asked the Thessalonians to continue praying for them. And then, in verse twenty-six, Paul says, "Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss." In the ancient world, kissing either on the the forehead or the cheek was a typical way to greet people who were in close relationship to one another, whether Uh, close friends, or family members. And it it actually also came to be a symbol of fellowship between Christians as well. And and as you read the New Testament, Paul usually sends personal greetings to all of the members of the church, whichever church he's writing to. And here he basically asks them to kiss everyone for me. Say hello to everyone for me. Paul deeply affirmed the Thessalonians as brothers and sisters in Christ. And he emphasizes his love for them one last time here. And then as his final instruction, in verse 27, he writes, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. And this is a a pretty strong statement. And so in the ancient world, you might ask someone to swear an oath in order to make sure that they did something that they said they would do. But Paul here just skips that, and he puts the Thessalonians. He simply tells them that they are under divine obligation, that they're responsible before the Lord to have this letter read to all the members of the church. And this shows us that Paul understands that what he has written in this letter is authoritative. That this hasn't just been a bunch of, of interesting thoughts and suggestions that the Thessalonians could take or leave depending on how they feel about it. This is the word of God. And so Paul expects for all of the Thessalonians to hear it, and he expects them all to obey it as well. And then in verse 28, Paul gives one final blessing for the church to continue experiencing the Lord's grace. And if you remember back to chapter 1, Paul started the letter uh, with, with a blessing for the church to have the Lord's grace among them, and now he ends it in the same way. And that's that's pretty fitting because from start to finish and everywhere in between, our salvation is all by God's grace. And John Newton captured the dynamic in the third verse of his famous hymn, Amazing Grace, when he wrote, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. And his grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. It is all of God's grace. This was Paul's hope for himself, It was Paul's hope for the Thessalonians, and it's our hope as well. And that is the book of 1 Thessalonians. So as we finish our study of of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians this morning, uh, we we see his second half, his, his completion of his final instructions to this young church that was so near and dear to his heart. And in a variety of ways, Paul explains how the church at Thessalonica could fulfill their calling to live lives that glorify the Lord as his chosen people. And really, that's what this whole letter is about. All right, we may remember back to chapter uh, 4, verse 3, where Paul writes, This is the will of God, your sanctification. The reason Paul wrote this letter informing the Thessalonians of what they needed to know and to do is so that they, and, and we by extension, could faithfully serve God's purposes as his people. So our calling is to be disciples of Jesus who make other disciples of Jesus by living lives that bring him glory and that draw other people to embrace the gospel for themselves. And so this morning, like the Thessalonians 2,000 years ago. Let's receive God's word and be the people and the church the Lord has called us to be. Let's pray together.